The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program, July 17th, 2020, your boy, Justin Robert Young, reporting. We uh, had an interesting week. You know, that, that, that Twitter hack was, was a real weird one. I still feel like we're going to see more from that. We're not going to talk much more about it on this particular episode of the show. But beyond the real tragedy of an hour and a half silencing of the blue check marks, of which I proudly count myself as one, my inability as a specifically designated blue check mark upper cruster to not bless the timelines of the commoners. Oh, oh, did I feel so, so lonely without you, but. As King George sings in Hamilton. Oh, Hamilton. That's something that us blue check marks like to talk about. Oh, we titter about what seats we got. Were you in the orchestra or the loge? Mm. That's, that's what happens when us blue check marks get together. Mm. As King George sings, you'll be back. And indeed you were an hour and a half later. So starved. For the opinions of us, the blue check mark class. <laughs> the hack was actually interesting, and I think that there's more that we're going to find out about it. But um, curious to see whether or not Jack is going to get hauled in front of Congress. Seems to be some rumblings on that. And then, of course, there's Josh Howley, who loves writing letters. Other than that, I hope everybody's getting ready for a uh, a nice weekend. Obviously, please stay safe. Uh, uh, we wanna we wanna make sure that you guys, as many of you guys, are here for the big home stretch of this election, which I still have questions about. We will get into that. We have our mailbag. Wherein we're going to talk about the Washington Redskins. We're going to talk about Josh Howley's letter to the NBA about whether or not schools should be opened, and uh, some some good some good vibes to Tom Merritt's segment from somebody who is still working on the front lines of the program for which he talked about this Wednesday. We also have a great interview. I love this interview. It's an awesome interview about ranked choice voting. I once had to describe the listeners of this podcast, and and the best I could come up with is that I think that this podcast winds up attracting from the curious elements of all parties. It's the reason why we get Bernie voters and Trump voters, and we get a lot of third-party libertarians and Greens listening to this show because people are curious about if, if the situation they're looking at now is the only situation they'll ever look at. Because I, 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 I thank you guys that you trust me to have honest intellectual discussions. But one thing that is very popular, not only with my audience, 
i.e. you, person listening, possibly, statistically, but also my personal friends, is ranked choice voting. And so we brought on somebody that not only knows a lot about it outside of America, but has studied the voting patterns inside our own borders, and he's got some stats, some actual numbers to talk about how effective or problematic ranked choice voting is. But first. Okay, let's dive into the polls. Here is NBC, Wall Street Journal, Joe Biden at 51%, Donald Trump at 40%. These are national polls. At Quinnipiac, it's even bigger. Joe Biden, 52%, Donald Trump, 37 What do you say? It's significant. If this, the 2020 election, is a landslide as every available indicator seems to say it is, why doesn't it feel like a landslide? Quinnipiac had Joe Biden up 15% beefy. But it doesn't feel like he's up 15%, does it? I mean, it might feel like Donald Trump is down 15%, but it doesn't really feel like Biden's up, does it? Turns out landslides are kind of hard to predict. Sometimes they show up when you least expect them, and sometimes you might expect them and they never show up. 1980 was an example of a time where the polls were very, very, very wrong. This is John F. Stacks from Time Magazine uh, writing after the results of the 1980 election, which uh, had Carter up late into the game and then wound up as a Reagan landslide. For weeks before the presidential election, the gurus of public opinion polling were nearly unanimous in their findings. In survey after survey, they agreed that the coming choice between President Jimmy Carter and challenger Ronald Reagan was too close to call. A few points at most, they said, separated the two major contenders. Now, 1980 is a very charged topic for Republicans. In many ways, it set the template for much of the success and grievance that's guided conservatives for now four decades. On one hand, it was the birth of a GOP icon in Reagan who mastered the stagecraft and rhetoric of his age in a way that only Michael Jackson, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Hulk Hogan later did. But it also crystallized the issue Republicans have had with the media since. The idea that it is unfairly tilted toward liberal and Democratic candidates. As the voting eventually bore out, Jimmy Carter was deeply, deeply, deeply unpopular in America. And yet, the media and polling didn't say that. In fact, as late as October, Carter led by close to 8%. Now, the polls did narrow, screamed the boffins. Sure. But there's no doubt that the media was shocked by the result which was an absolute trouncing. Look at the figures, and NBC News now makes its projection for the presidency. 
Reagan is our projected winner. Ronald Wilson Reagan of California, a sports announcer, a film actor, a governor of California, is our projected winner at 8.15 Eastern Standard Time. On this election night, we have projected Ronald Reagan the winner. That's our projection. It is a rather early call. If you don't believe me, just listen to a young Tom Brokaw break it down on NBC in 1980. The word we've been using all year has been volatile, fluid, mercurial, whatever. But I don't think anyone anticipated that it would eventually would become a floodgate of one kind or another, where the votes would just flood in for Ronald Reagan. Which brings me back to now. We have more polls than ever in 2020, and we are lousy with people to pick them apart and explain them for us. And almost universally, they point right now to a generational trouncing by Joe Biden. Even bedrock-safe, blood-red states like Texas are in play. But I ask you again... Does it feel like that? Do you feel like that? Do you feel that this is going to be an easy cakewalk for Joe Biden? That this thing is effectively already over? It doesn't to me. And I'm going to let you know it's driving me crazy. Trump may very well go into election day with similar problems as Carter. The economy has held up through the first phase of this pandemic, but with cases surging again and more lockdowns being ordered to stop the spread, that may change. And then, of course, there's the pandemic itself. Our death rate rose last week and statistically leveled off this week, but still, we saw our first four-digit national death toll since early June this week. And that's a very bad sign for a president that seems to desperately want to move on from the pandemic. And yet, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's that the beast we see before us is not yet in its final form. Things will change, and they will probably change rapidly. So far, very few of 2020's changes have been positive for Trump. But will that streak continue? Meanwhile, Biden's lack of messaging, aside from I'm not Trump, continues to bet on Trump's self-destruction. And so far, that bet has come in month after month. But do voters see that as leadership? Will they say that they prefer Biden and then just stay home because they aren't motivated by either candidate? And what are we supposed to do about these polls? 15% beefy. But what if they're wrong and Donald Trump is just fundamentally unpollable for some reason? Is anything possible? I mean, you look at it on the video and it looks like a can of Pepsi and then a knife cuts into it and it's a cake. 2020 is full of lies. 
Nothing is what it seems. Jimmy Carter is a cake. Tom Brokaw, young Tom Brokaw, a 1980 NBC cake. Nate Silver is a cake. Nate Cohn is a cake. All the polls, cake, 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 realcakepolitics.com. That's what this all is. Fibs, lies, fables. We are all going crazy. This podcast is a cake. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. Of course, you can always email the show for our mailbag, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Got some good ones today. Ken writes in, I enjoyed your talk with Jen Merchicha. I think what changed regarding the effectiveness of Trump's rhetoric is COVID. Personally, I find myself avoiding anything potentially intense or stressful. I've been binging old familiar sitcoms and eating comfort food. I think others are doing that too. Trump is controversial, confrontational, and intense in a time when America only has an appetite for baked mac and cheese, warmth, and familiarity. That is good old Uncle Joe. I was with you right up until the end because I don't know if Joe is safe. But I I think everything up to that, I totally agree with Ken. I I do think that there's an element of the super fight, culture war, everything is a a, a tooth and nail scream fest that maybe was a a luxury of a, a bygone era. Andrea writes, I just wanted to pass along that I really appreciated Tom's history lesson on what is now the TANF program. I am an employment coordinator, staff trainer, and child support liaison for a nonprofit that administers Wisconsin's TANF program called Wisconsin Works, or W-2, for eight counties in western Wisconsin. I've been doing this for five years now, and it is a tough, thankless, and extraordinarily rewarding job all at the same time. I was a teacher in a former life. I spent 13 years in rural schools before making the career change. I traded my boyfriend ditched me on prom drama for I'm homeless and sleeping in the park with my two kids. It's crazy for me uh, uh, to see how much policy shifts with administrations, i.e. Scott Walker to Tony Evers. And again, how policy responds to a pandemic. Tom's deeper dive into the history Help me have a better understanding on the background for a program I believe in, yet have a love-hate relationship with any given day. Well, I'm glad uh, he was able to do that. And he was able to do one-third of my job on Wednesday. Seth writes, I wanted to respond to somebody who submitted an email to the mailbag last week claiming that they had not seen any of the large companies that were present at the White House back in March followed through on their promises to set up testing sites. Kroger CEO Rodney McMullen was one of the CEOs present at the White House back in March, along with colleagues from Walmart, Target, Walgreens, etc. I cannot attest to the rest of these companies, but Kroger has indeed followed up on their promise. They have administered in excess of 100,000 tests since that day in the White House and have recently received FDA approval for an at-home test, which they will be giving employees free access to. To answer your question, yes, I work at Kroger. And while I cannot attest to the other companies following through on their promises, I am proud that I work for a company that did. I've been a longtime listener to the podcast and never felt I had good information to write in until now. Keep up the work, uh, the amazing work, Justin. Almost forgot my own compliment. 
Glad I picked it up. Oh, Seth, you are making me so tempted to rescind the fact that I had a bad take. Maybe I had a good take. Maybe, no, still not. I need somebody from Target, from Walgreens, and from Walmart to write in and tell me that they are doing testing as well. Because if that is true, then I will, I will, I'll finally do it. I'll rescind the fact that I had a bad take. We'll go back to me having 100% good takes, a flawless take record. Andrew writes, writing in response to the email regarding remote schooling. I do not believe that going 100% remote is in the best interest of children. While remote schooling can be effective for older students, middle school and high school, I don't believe it's effective for younger students. I'm a father of two. I've got a child going into second grade and one going into kindergarten this upcoming school year. And I'm in total support of them going back to school full time. Large part of this is due to the low impact of COVID on children under 10. People who support all remote learning tend to overlook two particularly important issues. First, who's going to be at the home with these students? Not all parents have the luxury of working from home. Parents who can work from home must work. It's incredibly difficult to work full time plus maintain a child's education. If you have a six or seven year old, you have time to watch them and make sure that they join meetings on time or help them with activities. You must make sure that they are paying attention and don't just quit the call and go to PBS Kids or YouTube. So parents then have to choose, does my work suffer or does my child get a subpar education? The second point most people overlook is how teachers in schools actually teach. Long gone are the days where a teacher would stand in front of a room and simply make kids read out of a textbook. Teachers don't just lecture kids without interaction. The reason we still have teachers is because people in the education field know that videos and pre-recorded lectures and limited face-to-face -face time does not provide children with the best learning opportunities. To save money, every school district would fire their teacher tomorrow if they could simply replace them with videos and limited outsourced video conferencing. All right, here's my take on schooling. Why are we talking about this nationally? That's my take. This is so personal for parents. This is so important considering it, it uh, affects teachers. This should be a, not even state by state, a county by county conversation between the following parties. Teachers and their union, the county school board, and parents. That's where they should live. It should certainly not be a national issue where you are picking between the annoyingly disparate options of do we want education or health? It is as stupid as do we want the economy or health? These are not dichotomies. These are not two polar issues. They can and indeed will exist together we need to figure out on each county level, county school board level, what the best way to keep everybody educated and healthy is. Uh, it, it just is a fruitless national issue, at least in my opinion. Carl writes, as you've probably seen, the Washington Redskins have opted to retire the American Indian logo and their name, the Redskins. 
on the same topic. Florida State University seems to have avoided much of the cultural backlash with using Native American representation by partnering with the Seminole tribe. I'm not sure how much the Florida State side of the story is fluff, but out by the university versus an actual good mutual relationship. As a Florida native, do you have any insight? And if there is truth to the relationship between the school and the tribe, is that a possible model for some of the sports teams with their similar naming issues? So, indeed, Florida State University has a relationship with the actual Seminole tribe. And if you go to their website, you can read all about how the tribe has publicly declared that they are happy with it. There is no mascot, technically, at Florida State, which this is a little hole in the sheety, but, like, there is no mascot, but there is Osceola, the not-mascot who is the guy who rides to the center of the field when they play football games and uh, uh, rides his horse Appaloosa and throws the spear into the ground. Like, so not a, he's kind of a mascot, but he's not a mascot, whatever. There's a relationship there. And it kind of brings up a very operative point because when Florida State wanted to make sure that they had a good relationship with the tribe for which they have as a, as a name, as branding, they knew where to go because the Seminoles are an actual tribe. They have a tribal council. They have a history. They have a culture. So if you want to be part of it, if you want to make overtures, there's a place to go. And I think that that's a part of this is that if the Seminole tribe, because who's going to complain? If the Seminole tribe is complaining, then the Florida State University will have to remove their branding. So it is incumbent upon them to be in a partnership with the tribe. Now, let me add the caveat that this is a partnership with tribal leadership. So who knows if every member of Seminole Nation thinks that this is a super awesome and cool idea. But at least there is a place to go. Let's compare and contrast that with the Redskins or the Indians or the Braves where, even if they wanted to, does the leadership of those organizations go to be part of the culture? You could pick out a tribe. Certainly Daniel Snyder with the Redskins tried to do that. You can pick out different tribal leaders and bring them on and have them put out a press release, but it's going to ring hollow because ultimately you are not honoring a tribe. You're honoring a fairly anglicized idea of one. And even if the Florida State Seminole is indeed an anglicized idea of a Seminole warrior, a tribal Seminole warrior, then they at least have a template. There's at least a, a specific thing you can look toward in a way that you can't with the generalized idea of it. And I think that's where we kind of come down to. That's why I don't think that the Seminoles will change their name. Because also, I think that the Seminole Nation likes having that branding they enjoy it also the Seminoles ain't exactly hurting Whew. tell you what 
they they have done they have been pretty good in financially uh, uh, expanding their uh, uh, expanding their wealth. According to some numbers that I found on the internet, the Seminole Tribe of Florida clears $853 million annually and in 2007 purchased the Hard Rock Cafe brand. Uh, this was after they had opened a licensed Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in South Florida, right around the corner from my place. In fact, it was like right down the road from where my mom used to work. The one and only Gloria Young. Samantha writes, I hope you and yours are well. I wanted your updated hot take on the MAGA opinion that COVID is a hoax to make Trump look bad. It's a very weird dynamic here in rural North Carolina right now. If you wear a mask, then you must be one of those Democrat liberals. And if you don't wear a mask, the chances of you having a Trump 2020 sticker on the back of your pickup is much higher than not. Why are masks political? Samantha, thank you for writing in. I think nobody wants to wear a mask, right? Nobody. But there is a mitigation problem that we have in this country. And it's largely because we're a gigantic country that's compared to other countries, rich enough to move around a lot, rich enough to go out to eat a lot, rich enough to do stuff. And so you got a hard time keeping us down. So masks wind up becoming a focal point of things because if you're gonna move around, if you're gonna live your life, a way for which we can all go about it is mitigating it with the masks. I don't quite know why it became political. All I know is this. Whenever I ask somebody that is on one side of this or the other, they say it's the other side that made it political. Which is fruitless and stupid. So, all I say is this. This is a big, unwieldy country. We got no way to lock down a state against state to quarantine some of this stuff. It's just impossible. It's culturally impossible. It's legally impossible. The only thing we can do is mitigate it. So even, I know there are diehard people that are, are fighting the culture war that are listening to me right now. It just helps. It helps. It helps mitigate. You know, keep your droplets. Block your droplets. Be a droplet blocker. That's, that's I think, you want to know what? Forget masks. Whatever. Droplet block. Can we please droplet block? Figure out the way that you are best equipped to block your droplets and specifically inside in fact this is look science and science science is still early on this right which is why it also frustrates frustrates me that we beat each other up with these like preprint papers this is such bad science terrible science awful bad science to, to make it religion and start beating people up when we are still emerging on exactly what this is but everything we've seen thus far is that the real trouble zone is inside. Mask inside. Mask outside. Look, I wear a mask outside. I I just think it's, it's a better thing. But I'm not going to crush you for that. I do very much believe if you're hanging out with people, even if you're just drinking a few brews, 
and you're not in like a social bubble, i.e. you're not like the only four people that you hang out around, new people, strangers, man, masking helps. It does. It does. It helps. It helps. Sean writes, I'm disappointed I didn't hear about my senator picking a fight with the NBA from you. Josh Howley said something along the lines of the NBA giving into China and not supporting cops. Your perspective on all the right moves the NBA has done in regards to player demonstrations has been world class. Your critique on the NBA are second to only your expertise on Kanye as a political a presidential candidate. Thank you, Sean. Uh, indeed. And I think I said this on the PX3 Extra, but I will uh, dust it off for you guys as well. The most dangerous place in cyberspace is between United States Senator Josh Howley and a trending topic. He scampers and crawls all teeth and knees and elbows trying to get to that topic so he can capitalize on it. Indeed, a forward soldier in the culture war, Senator Howley is. He did that to Twitter in between when Sean sent this email, but there was a big deal about him sending a, a letter, an open letter to the NBA. And in that open letter, he said some things that I totally agree with, including that the NBA uh, has turned a blind eye to China because China is a big part of the NBA's financial picture. And I think that's true. There are things happening in China right now that are horrifying. And we only know about these things by way of surreptitiously recorded pictures and videos because they don't have a free press. While it's tempted, tempting to say, well, look at what they're doing. Well, look at what we're doing here. We have a much fuller picture of what we are doing here versus what China does to its own people. Much fuller. We, we love to tattle on ourselves. We love to wring our hands about how awful we are. Without a free press, that's impossible. And there's a lot of stuff that's going on in China. Now, that being said, Josh Howley is a China hawk. That's cool. It seems like the majority of people today, at the very least, are more on his side in terms of not believing that China is our friend. But when it comes to the NBA, I I personally don't enjoy the whataboutism of, well, you don't support cops, but you do support China. I think that that is a work environment where management has listened to the workforce and they are going to go about their agreements as they have written them. Does that mean that they are deficient on China? I would say yes. Does it invalidate the message that they want to get out there? In my opinion, no. But, you know, Howley's really out here so he can win the Breitbart comments section. Whether or not you agree or disagree with elements of what he thinks, that's really what he's here for. All right. You can email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. All right, we haven't had any Campaign Undertaker giveaways for a little bit. So we're going to do another kind of giveaway. I have to give a gigantic shout-out to a man by the name of 
Bo, who sent me an email in June saying, you can't believe that this thing is real. And he sent me pictures of a board game called Monopoly House Divided. Why stop at the boardwalk? Now you can have the White House is the tagline. And it basically is Monopoly for the broken, divisive culture war that we live in. If you want to talk about trivializing the, the, the totally insane partisan culture that we have, the final stop has to be Monopoly House Divided. So, I'm going to give this away. All you got to do is head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com and in the comment section for this episode, the one released on July 17th, 2020, just go ahead and write Monopoly. I'm going to sign the box and I will send it to you. We'll have a winner next week, but we are giving away a copy of Monopoly House Divided. I am very, 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 very excited to put this out uh, uh, to, to our lucky winner. Dream campaign and vote your way to the White House. Oh, by the way, uh, all of the all of the properties are states. So you're literally buying states until you become the president of the United States. Just, just so tone deaf and ridiculous. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is also where you can make sure that you get the $3 club. At $3, you get two bonus episodes, one on Thursday, one on Monday. And, and these were good ones this week. We got uh, my full breakdown on the Twitter hack that happened on Wednesday. That was in the Thursday episode. So if you want to get that, go ahead and do it. And of course, every patron... At the $1 level included, you get the custom RSS feed. And as we discovered over the last week, sometimes the delay between when this goes out on Patreon and when it winds up working its way through the system on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Pocket Cast and everything else, sometimes hours, hours different. You can get it faster, earlier by heading on over to take politics seriously my guest today is Jason McDaniel. He is a professor of political science at San Francisco State University, and we are going to talk all about ranked choice voting. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Ranked choice voting is something that all of my friends are obsessed with. I, I don't know what it is. Uh, whatever cohort in America is is really, really jazzed on ranked choice voting, it also coincides with what I look for in a friend. But for those who don't know, how would you describe ranked choice voting? This is something I struggle with every time I write about it or talk about it. Um, <laughs> Actually, because you know, I didn't know about it when I when I first moved to San Francisco back in like 2009. I'd never heard about it, and suddenly, you know, I'm one of the people who study it for a living. Um, so, uh, you know, it's gone from something that 
people have never heard of to now I, I'm kind of like you, everybody seems to know about it. And it's certainly not because they're reading my research, I'll tell you that. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it is um, a change to election systems that does basically, I think, two things, can be boiled down to two things. One is it um, changes the ballot that people are faced with such that they are given the option of ranking more than one candidate preference rather than just choosing one, right? Yeah. Previously, in, in various election systems, regardless, they choose one candidate, right? Now they're given um, more preferences. You know, it's been three for a long time in San Francisco. It's, they're going to change that. In some places, you know, they're, allowed, they're required to, um, uh, outside the United States, required to rank all of the candidates, you know. Um, but so that's the basic, that's the, I think the most fundamental change. And that's why it used to be called this, you know, instant runoff voting, but San Francisco has changed to rank choice voting. And I think that's a more accurate sort of term because it changes the way we make the choice from just choosing one to ranking amongst many preferences, right? And then the other thing it does is it sort of eliminates the possibility of um, runoff elections in some places, San Francisco, yeah. for instance, runoff elections. Um, and so what most places, at least cities have, that have adopted it, have have now moved all of their elections to the sort of November timeframe, no need for a primary and a runoff type system. And so it's sort of consolidated the election timing as well. And that part of it, I think, has gotten less of the the uh, uh, you know uh, hype. But I think those are the two basic things it does. But these the, the system in 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 short is to make sure that you by picking one two three that if everybody's number two choice is the same but their number ones are varying then there is a worth to that there is a worth to being a a wide uh, a consensus as opposed to a very thin majority in a simple i'm going to vote for this person or i'm going to vote for this person if you only have one shot at it right I think that's, you're getting a couple of different things there, but you're right. I, I would say that a lot of people, the idea of this is that in many places, the way we do our voting system in the United States, it's called first past the post, which yeah. is a phrase that I still sometimes, I'm like, what does that mean? We get that from <laughs> England, I think. And the idea is that in not all elections do you need a majority to win. Uh, you're just the, the most votes, usually, unless you're uh, running for president. <laughs> and yeah. so th that's the, the idea is that this will then guarantee a majority. Now, that's not entirely true that this creates that because in many systems you would have a runoff and you, or, or you know, if no candidate received a majority, there would be a runoff at the top two and, and, and then you would get a majority vote. So that's part of what you're saying is there this idea, which I think is one of the reasons why it might be popular amongst people who you know and I know and who listen to podcasts like this is that there's a sense of intuitive fairness of the winner should have a majority, right? Yeah. And it does that by, you know, doing this process where you are, not just counting first choice votes. If nobody has then a majority of first choices, it goes to, you know, lower level choices, and it produces this process where, you know, candidates are eliminated. The lowest ranked candidates are eliminated, and their votes, their second and third place votes, are transferred to the remaining candidates. And that process is done until one of the candidates has a majority then of the first place votes. Uh, and that is the sort of the true thing that it really does. It produces this majority winner by, you know, counting up second and third place votes. And so you were getting at this idea then that it, the idea is, in theory, and I think there is some truth to this, that 
a candidate that has a broad appeal, you know, sort of not just maybe an intense first choice appeal, right? Yeah. But a broad appeal to several different parts of an electorate who can who can get votes and support second and third place votes, you know, and more uh, from from different parts of an electorate. Those kinds of candidates tend to have an advantage when it comes to ranked choice voting elections. The people that I hear about it most from are often folks who are third party voters or are exasperated by our modern parties. And and uh, obviously there is there's research to suggest that both parties are kind of uh, uh, appealing to hardcore bases. Uh, and, and so that would seemingly leave people a little bit frustrated if they do not share those same values. Do you think that a polarization is bringing ranked choice voting more to the fore? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so you're absolutely right. I, I do think a lot of the sort of interest in ranked choice voting is driven by people who are somewhat dissatisfied with the two-party system in the United States. Um, you know, the problem is, is that a lot of those people, most th that, that group of people don't really represent a, a very large group of people in the United States, even though it feels like everyone you and I might know. Oh, uh, sure, yeah. You know, feel that way. Uh, um, so you're absolutely right. And, and the way I would say this is, that, especially when it's been studied in other countries, because it is, it does form of a form of this exists in other countries. It's the idea that their vote might not be wasted, right? It, yeah. It's, it's that this idea that okay, the the perception perhaps of the two parties or the two candidates, right? Uh, in the in the elections that I study, they're nonpartisan mostly, and so it's more about candidates. But the idea of parties in multiple party systems that you don't have to worry about. Um, choosing maybe the lesser of two evils, if you think of it that way. And so that you're, because your vote might be wasted in a non-ranked choice voting type situation, you can therefore for vote more sincerely, is the phrase that political scientists use on this. And then therefore, you can lower rank maybe some of the more viable candidates that you know, are more likely to win. You can you, you know, use a, a lower ranking on, on those. And, and so that's the psychology there. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's this idea that it changes the way we think about the vote, you know, in terms of, I think the voting in cities that I look at where it's often about racial polarization, not partisan polarization, but mm. racial polarization. And a lot of people, you know, would theorize that, uh, you know, minority groups, you know, people who, who might uh, identify with a racial minority group that is a small part, you know, an emerging part of an electorate might not want to vote for someone from their, you know, racial minority group because they don't have a chance to to appeal to the to the wider you know electorate and, and win the election, and so therefore they're going to waste their vote. They might feel if they if they vote for someone of their group, right? Yeah. And so that's that's the context in which I've studied it. I do think to go now go back to your question, you know, the the era of polarization, at least the perception that polarization is causing problems at the national level, especially with you know federal uh, the federal level. Uh, um, I think does drive a lot of interest in reforms and, and this kind of reform. Um, a similar one would be the sort of top two election that we have here in California for, you know, for the primary system of, of not making it about automatically one Democrat and one Republican, but rather whoever it is that gets the top two vote, yeah. you know, the top two vote finishers. Um, this idea that we can reduce polarization perhaps does drive a lot of the interest. The problem is, is that I'm not sure that's supported by the research, <laughs> which I have some of the only research on that. So you mentioned that this is 
in practice around the world. Can you give us an example of where it exists and how it affects the vote? So I think, you know, um, Australia, um, some portions of, of Ireland, um, there, there's actually, you know, Papua New Guinea uh, has, has, some of the, has some of these elections at times. Um, and these are mostly sort of multi-party systems, uh, you know, that have, you know, more than two viable parties. Um, and it is used in sort of elections throughout. It's been used for a long time in these places. Um, you know, one of the main differences I would say is that um, a lot of it is then uh, people are used to voting for more than, you know, sort of across parties, multiple parties. And, and the main difference, I think, and you see this in Ireland, or Australia especially, is that the voting ballots often have the logos of the party or the pictures of the candidates on there. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I, and that is sort of um, something that I think is really different than I've ever seen it used in, in, in the United States because we have sort of an aversion to that idea of party logos and nonpartisan ballots. And we think parties are often the problem. A lot of people perceive that. Well, that's, that's sort of anti-party feelings don't really exist in those other countries. And so that's how uh, um, this idea that's usually, you see much more prominent party features on the ballots and you see requiring more, um, more uh, expressing more preferences. So it's not just three usually, it's, it's, it's more you know, 10 to 15 or, or however many parties there are. Have we seen ranked choice voting in places that do have a strong two-party system like we do uh, be put in and reward a more diversity of party representation? <laughs> so, uh, so far, no, uh, or at least it's too early to tell. Maine is the only state that's adopted it for a sort of statewide elections. Um, New York has just adopted it, but it's not yet come into effect for, um, for uh, some party primaries. Um, and um, so, so far, we don't have enough data to study that. Um, you know, so yeah, the answer is no. Yeah. I mean, most elections it's, it's used in, it's been nonpartisan city elections um, where most of the data, that's why you know, I studied it in terms of racial polarization um, in Bay Area elections, uh, which is not the same, but it's I think a similar kind of concept, this idea of, of you know, people using racial identity as kind of like party affiliation to guide their vote choice and being polarized along those lines. And what I found is that it didn't reduce uh, uh, polarization uh, uh, um, in terms of that kind of voting. Now, that may not apply um, to statewide or, or partisan elections. It really may not. Um, but I do think people should temper their expectations that ranked choice voting is going to reduce polarization. I really do. I, I think it's unlikely uh, to have that kind of effect. Um, it might do something that's related to polarization, or at least people think is related to polarization, which is there's some pretty strong evidence that it leads candidates to campaign in a kind of nicer way, to ah. appeal, to, to sort of directly try to avoid turning off constituencies, right? And to, to, to try to campaign in a way that's broad, to appeal to diverse and multiple constituencies and ask for votes from multiple constituencies. Candidates seem to perceive that they, um, they need to campaign in a nicer way. They need to be nicer to their opponents and try to get endorsements from their, their opponents. You know, this idea of, you know, will you tell your supporters to choose me second or third, right? And I'll do the same. Those kinds of cross-candidate um, slates. There is definitely some evidence that that occurs. And so people seem to like that, right? 
but I would warn people that's not polarization. <laughs> in political no. science, we really look at this in a much deeper way. And, and being nice to your opponent doesn't mean you're not polarized, right? Uh, um, and um, you know, appealing to a broad swath of the electorate, or at least perceiving, you know, that you know, campaigning in a way that's perceived that way, doesn't mean that your policies aren't actually incredibly polarized, right? Uh, um, so. I do think that's the one sort of unambiguous result of ranked choice voting that people can expect is that candidates will at least try to appeal across sort of ideological, racial, partisan groupings. So I, I want to actually get, get local on some of your uh, uh, research there in a second. But but before we do, I, I want to follow up on that idea of campaigning nicer and 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 having this implicit or explicit idea that hey if you don't vote for me number 1 vote for me number 2 because it reminds me the only place that I've seen that on display in big league american politics is the Iowa caucus where yeah. you have a very byzantine and complicated system uh, uh that I won't fully get into but you can if your candidate is not viable in the room, you can decide that you're going to vote for somebody else uh, and, and you are going to uh, represent for another candidate that was kind of your second choice. So everybody in Iowa, when you ask caucus goers or prospective caucus goers, they don't just have their number one. They might say, oh, I'm definitely caucusing for blank, but they also have their second and third. Uh, they are they're thinking in that mind. And yet that doesn't seem to get the 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 uh, reputation of being any more enlightened than <laughs> uh, a, a straight out primary. In fact, they were so frustrating this year that uh, there are thoughts that we've seen the last of them in terms of deciding a party's nominees. So, uh, would would you say that that's that's consistent with some of your research that there is an effect, but it might not be the effect that people think ranked choice voting would be? You know, I would say this. Um, People who follow, you know, nomination processes and caucuses have long known that the people who participate in caucuses are those that are highly involved, right? <laughs> yes. They're strong partisans. They know the difference between the candidates. They know their own preferences very clearly and how the candidates sort of rank fit into their own preferences, right? And so the idea of a quasi-ranking process is built into the Iowa caucuses, for, you know. Um, and and actually, let me, let, me, let me also clarify, too, that I believe on the Republican side, it would almost uh, uh, identically be ranked choice voting because they don't right. do the stand around and do the hokey pokey and move around the room <laughs> thing. Right. They just right. literally walk up and they mark down their top three and then they leave. Right. And, and that's much more, you know, of an actual ranked choice voting process. But still, even even so, here's how it connects with my research. Most voters are not like Iowa caucus cards. Yeah. Right? Caucuses are not a very good way of choosing a nominee. It's not a very democratic process in the way we think about it in terms of more participatory, bringing people into the process. It is about those with strong preferences who are highly, highly involved and engaged in the process, right? Um, party primaries are much more democratic in that regard. Though, again, I think choosing a nominee to convention is perfectly democratic, too. It's just a different kind of democratic process. Um, so putting that, that aside... I think ranked choice voting is going to be more appealing to those who have more deep involvements in politics and more um, who are involved and interested and informed. And that is just not the vast majority of voters. It's not even close 
to the majority of voters, especially in primary elections. But anything other than sort of presidential or maybe even gubernatorial elections, most voters, I think, are not going to have the well-defined preferences that an Iowa caucus or, a, or a, even a, a ranked choice voting process might really reward, right? And so that's where my research shows that, you know, I have caution, you know, about my research supports some caution about ranked choice voting because, you know, I, I've shown that it increases some errors. And I think it, uh, error rates in sort of new ballots that are, you know, maybe unfamiliar to people at first, or my research shows that there's some decline in turnout. Right. And I think it's a new process. And, and those who are used to sort of being involved adjust to these new processes quite well. Others are not going to. And they're going to maybe have their vote disqualified or they're not going to turn out to vote. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's going to exacerbate some of the inequalities that we see in our elections. That's sort of the gist of my research findings across a couple of studies. And I think it's, you know, that's going to continue in if people adopt ranked choice voting in larger elections. Now that may change over time. Right? Yeah. May get used to it. But I, you know, again, I think people overpromise and have high expectations that this will change the system. Um, and I don't think it's going to do that much in that regard. And so maybe, you know, I, I focus in on some of the negative aspects or the, the potential negative aspects more so. Uh, I may have gone away from what your question was. No, maybe. no, no. You want to know what? It's actually uh, kind of funny because I... I always push back against ranked choice voting with my with my friends, and I often kind of you know joke around that. I always joke around that you know like oh we're we're Americans like we want big sweaty hairy winners and that's it <laughs> like we are winner take all we don't have a, a a table and crown a champion for the regular season we have playoffs and they are statistically <laughs> unbalanced and they might not be represent representative of the true winner but that's what we do and that's what we love and that's why we're Americans so I I I, I can hear some of them yelling at their phones that I have booked a ringer for this interview to uh, point out the negative elements of ranked choice uh -huh. voting. But well, most people support there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are very pro ranked choice voting. So I can definitely give you oh, some Oh, no, 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 no. They all are. And they get very annoyed when I when I uh when I push back on it. But let me actually dig in a little bit more into your into your local research because I'm here in the Bay Area as well. So we're gonna go pretty local, I assume, if you are uh, uh, doing elections around here, but uh, where, which elections did you study and how long ago did they implement ranked choice voting reform? So I've done a couple of projects and, and one of them, which was about four years ago, published about four years ago, I just looked at sort of San Francisco elections over time, sort of before and after, right? Um, ranked choice voting. San Francisco adopted it for mayoral elections. The first mayoral election was 2007. Um, they adopted it starting in 2004 for some um, board of supervisors, you know, slash city council type elections. Um, and I, I, I haven't studied those. I, I've studied those in some of my um, projects on ballot errors. But my most recent project, I look at the seven cities that have adopted it for the, for the, for the purpose of, a, of mayoral elections. Right, um, Cambridge has used it for a long time, but it's you know I couldn't quite study it because I couldn't get a before and after, and it's a different kind of process. But there's four cities, um, you know, four of which are in the Bay Area: so Berkeley, Oakland, and San Leandro, uh, um, all of which adopted it. You know, San Leandro and Oakland adopted it for the first time in 2010 for their mayoral elections. Berkeley used it for the first time in 2012 for their mayoral elections. Adopted it around the same time. 
um, San Francisco, um, two cities in Minneapolis or in Minnesota, Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, Minneapolis adopted it for the first time in their 2009 uh, mayoral election, St. Paul in 2013, and then most recently Santa Fe, New Mexico, which adopted it for the first time in their 2018 mayoral election. So those are the seven cities I study most recently, and I examine election results before and after, looking at voter turnout, because that's the question that most interests me, is yeah. does this affect voter turnout? And, and early on, you know, the proponents of ranked choice voting, and there's one group that pretty much, you know, pushes this, and they're called Fair Vote, and they do a lot of good work, and, uh, um, but they're very, very, very pro ranked choice voting. And, and early on, when I moved to San Francisco, I, I found their, their sort of um, literature and quotes in, in, in the media about how this was going to you know, increase turnout and bring new people into the system, and it was going to increase choice. And I was, as a political scientist, I was like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> That's not how we study these things. Uh, we look at the, how this affects what the, the complications of voting, how complex yeah. and, and difficult voting is. And I was like, this seems to like be a more difficult process. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't make it more difficult to vote. Like you go to the voting booth, you're fine. If you're already registered, no problem. It doesn't change that. It's not like voter suppression, you know, or, or what have you, but it is a more complicated process. And I, as a political scientist should expect then that when you, when you have a more complicated voting process, you might see some negative consequences, right? And so I started laying out some hypotheses. I was like, you're gonna see lower voter turnout, I think amongst certain kinds of, of segments of the electorate, you're gonna see more ballot errors, right? That kind of thing. And so far in the research I've done, I've, I've, I've found results consistent with that. Um, the study I'm doing now, you know, is the one that I've been doing for a couple of years and, and it's, it's under review and hopefully gonna be published soon. But um, it's where I look at those seven cities and I compare them voting in those cities to voting in about a hundred other, you know, actually 150 other cities, uh, um, you know, before and after. So it's kind of like an experiment. You know, I'm, look, I'm sort of looking at, you know, sort of before and after in a control group idea, uh, and trying to look at turnout before and after. And my results show that once you adjust for some things that are important to adjust for, there is a decline, a significant decline in turnout after the implementation of ranked choice voting, um, from about two to four percentage points, which is actually quite substantial. And so, wow, you know, that's to me, uh, and again, now my previous study where I just looked at San Francisco over time, it wasn't very definitive, right? You know, and I, I understand I, it was very good. I think it's a good study, but it wasn't definitive. I was just looking at San Francisco. Election yeah. results. This is the first one that does this kind of process and, and compares it to other cities in a kind of quasi experimental way. And I think the results are, are, are you know, important and robust. And I, I think, you know, the, the sort of rush to adopt ranked choice voting that I do see. A lot of people feel like this is the way, you know, this is sort of the only thing that people say that we should do. You know, we've got to change things. Let's do this. And I understand that. But if it affects turnout, if it negatively affects turnout, to me, that's my priority. That's my value that I care about mostly. And unfortunately... There's a long history of city politics where cities like those in the Bay Area, those that have highly educated voters, you know, like very involved voters, Berkeley and San Francisco and Oakland have pretty high voter turnout compared to other cities. Yeah. Right. We have a robust political culture in the Bay Area at the local level. Right. And yet we see in the you know, going back over 100 years in, in the history of cities and, and elections and cities, a lot of reforms, quote unquote, 
that what they do is they, they ended up making voter turnout lower because they made the process a little harder for those voters that were least likely to be represented. So right? ranked choice voting has unintended consequences, at least by your research. By my research, and again, others are going to disagree with this. Yeah. It has some positives, and I, I do want to talk about those positive consequences. Yeah. But I do think it is exactly that idea of an unintended consequence. People are the people who support it are those who are like us, involved and care, and and maybe want to shake up the system and and have it be more competitive and more representative in that regard. But it's easy for us to forget about, you know, most people are not following these things the way we I mean I, I, so I've I've voted in Oakland I guess I've only voted in one ranked choice vote election as I'm doing research while you're speaking and that is the 2015 mayoral election as the outgoing Gene Kwan was succeeded by Libby Schaff and 2014 I, by the way oh, 2014 sorry she was inaugurated <laughs> inaugurated 2015 uh yeah. and that was uh I, I just kind of down whose signs I saw <laughs> whose yeah. signs I remembered and and I'm a fairly educated voter as somebody who's dialed in on politics for, uh, you know, for a living. So I, I can, I can understand where some of the noise might well also be amplified. And I guess that would be a, a question for everybody that has a very detailed and very well reasoned, uh, uh, top three, there might be goons like me that are just, you know, kind of scantroning it. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? I don't want to try to, you know, I definitely am anti-elitist in my, the way I think about voting, or at least I try to be, right? Like, sure, yeah. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I talk to young people all the time, and they are inundated with this idea that they are not informed enough to vote. And I tell them, no, 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 no. That's, you're, you're, you're sort of parroting you, something you've you heard, do, you You right? do not understand how dumb the rest of the world is. If you, exactly if you right. are, if you are right. asking that question, then congratulations, you're smart enough to vote. <laughs> exactly right, right? And, and so this idea that like I don't always have you know, informed preferences down to, I can imagine having informed preferences down to 10, 12, 15 candidates, like we see in a lot of San Francisco recent, you know, mayoral elections. And, you know, it's, I think it's elitist to expect people to have those informed. Sure. And yet, when we do look at the way people vote, it often people are surprised. There's no ideological grouping or there, or there rarely is ideological grouping the way you would expect, right? It's often a kind of scattershot kind of pattern of, you know, wow, you know, it's often about racial dynamics. It's not, maybe there could be some ideological groupings, but it takes a lot of work from the candidates to make that happen. We saw that in the 2018 election in San Francisco. And so it is possible, right? I think you'll see that in some like, you know, party primaries in New York for state legislature. You'll see, you know, candidates like AOC, you know, helping to rally that kind of ideological ranking. And that's okay. I'm, all, I'm good with that. Yeah, but it's going to take a lot of effort for for from politicians and campaigns to educate voters from campaign to campaign, and okay, maybe that's a good thing. But what I worry about is, you know, voters that might be, you know, turned off by this idea of like I have to have how many choices? I don't know. And it's just slightly more complicated thought process, and they're going to be like, you know what? I just don't have time, you know, to to, to think about this, or uh, you know, I'm just unsure, and maybe I don't think I'm informed enough, and therefore I shouldn't vote. Right. I think some of that might be explaining some of my results. And, you know, that, that unfortunately is consistent with that long history of reform of cities where, you know, 
you know, voter turnout in, in city politics in America is abysmally low. <laughs> it's, it, that's the problem. It's yeah. not that there's yeah. not three parties or four parties. Yeah. It's not that the candidates are, you know, not nice to each other. The problem is that there's not enough people voting. And so my priority is if you care about that, do everything you can to increase voter turnout and ranked choice voting is not going to increase voter turnout. It may not decrease it by as much as my results show, though I think it will, but it certainly will not increase voter turnout, at least in, in the short term. And by the short term, I mean three or four elections after it's adopted. I, I would be highly doubtful that, that will take place. So that's my priority. Yeah, you know, and that's, especially when you start looking at it from a perspective of, oh, this will heighten third party participation or influence. To me, that that kind of presupposes that these parties are are in the position that they're in because of some problem with the rule, and I, I don't know if that's the case. I, I think you've you've seen electrified third party runs. You've seen electrified runs from fringes of of other parts of of, of major parties. I think that it's up to the candidate and it's up to the campaign, and changing the rules isn't going to necessarily goose anything. Yeah, I mean, I think I have a lot to say about this. So, pardon me if I go on too long. On this Please one, go ahead. One of my instincts is, is if you're if you're trying to change the way we vote in the electoral system because you want different outcomes please pay attention to the possible negative consequences, right? That, that's one of the things that I, I think I, I tell people over and over again. It's like, you know, because there will be unintended and potentially negative consequences, right? That's one. You know, two, I often have to tell my students, you know, they, they often hear this idea that the two parties or system is the problem. And, and you know, political scientists, we studied this and yeah, there's some, there's some problems with the two-party system. It's deeply entrenched. It's not a conspiracy, really. It's because of the way we, we you know, run our elections. And part of that is in the Constitution and others are because of acts of Congress and local jurisdictional stuff. And, and I can see strong arguments for multi-member proportional representation as being more democratic than some of our other, the way we run elections and, and do our legislatures in the United States. I can see that argument and I would probably agree with it. But absent multi-member proportional representation, Ranked choice voting is not necessarily going to be so much better than many of the systems. It will be than some of the systems, right? If there's no runoff election, then I, I can say, okay, ranked choice voting is probably going to be a, a better, more fair, more democratic process. But if you're doing this because you think it's going to help third parties win, because you don't like the two parties, that anti-party feeling, yeah. right? Look, okay. Like it may help you feel better to not waste your vote and and therefore I'm, I'm fine with that, right? But it's probably your party is not going to win because it doesn't appeal broadly to enough people, right? It's probably not going to change who wins very much. That's that's my, you know, uh, uh, prior position on that. And and so if it has some negative consequences, that's where I fall, like we should be careful with it, right? Um, you know, it, it, that's, that's where I'm at. Like it, it's probably not going to change polarization. It might make people campaign more fairly. Some research that we haven't talked about is it might increase the, the racial and gender diversity of the candidate pool, in which case I'm all for that. That's uh -huh. the one result. I'm, I don't think it's definitive yet, but that's the one result that I'm like, if, if ranked choice voting increases the perception amongst candidates who are not representing, who are representing, you know, constituencies that are not well represented and that they are more likely to run women, unrepresented minority yeah. group. That's, that's worth it. That's worth it. 
But what that usually happens is parties in, in the United States, you change things by running within a party and changing the parties, not challenging the parties. This is the lesson of the Bernie Sanders campaign, right? Bernie did not win the nomination, but he changed the party. Yeah. You know, the conservative movement eventually took over the Republican Party, right? The Occupy movement didn't do this. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't know if you live in Oakland at the time, but but the Occupy movement was a big deal. It was an anti, it did not get involved that much with the Democratic Party. It was skeptical, generally, of partisan electoral politics. And I think, therefore, that's why it's, its influence fizzled out in a way that I think is different than the Black Lives Matter movement, right? That we're seeing it much closer to the Democratic Party in terms of, of its policy priorities, and we're seeing more responsiveness from the Democratic Party. I get people in America being sort of anti-two-party system, but but most political scientists, not all, but most political scientists will, will point out to you that there are some advantages of a two-party system, there are some advantages of multi-party systems. We can argue about that, but the two-party system is not some conspiracy to not represent you, and it has a lot of responsiveness but you do it through the parties and it's it's hard work and it takes time, but our political parties are quite permeable to change. And I think we're going through a moment where that's happening. And that's a long uh, lecture that's going away from interest voting. No, 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 this is, this is perfect. This is perfect. This is great. In fact, you have, you have no idea how much I'm going to send this interview around because I am, I am so in love with it. Uh, My guest has been Jason McDaniel. He is a political scientist and professor at San Francisco state university. Uh, uh, Thank you so much, Jason. My pleasure. It's been, it's been great talking with you. And that'll wrap us up for today. I want to thank my guest, Jason McDaniel. He was great. Love to have a more realistic look at ranked choice voting. Love it. You love to see it. Uh, I would also like to thank our Titanic $10 tier. Modesto's own Logan Cisco, NH Bumpkin, Chad Headphones, Neil Water Ice Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zach and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley Steven, your boy Craig, TripleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D Laser, I Poop My Pants, Just Another Pilot, Seriously, I Poop My Pants, Severio, Martin Alec, Government Unfiltered, Jerry, Gamer Goo, Andres, Archie, Jay Milius, The Jen, Adam, Zach, Olin and Angela, Christopher, DL, Brian, Ryan, Insert Scoop Name, Miranda, Robert, Brandon, John Terrica, Glenn, Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Kevin, Dustin, Daycat, Richard, Nick, Mike, Lindsay, Angela, Mateo, Random Complexity, what? Dead Man Inc., and Andrew, you want to join their ranks, you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com and you join that $10 tier. You want to follow me everywhere. Justin R. Young, Twitter, Instagram, most notably. And, oh yeah, we haven't plugged the Discord in a little bit. If you want a 24-7 place where you can enjoy uh, the company of many other people that like this show, so spoiler alert, it's not a flame war. It's actually kind of a cool place to hang, exchange some ideas. You can head on over to bit.ly slash jurydiscord, J-U-R-Y-D-I-S-C-O-R-D. 
a lot of you might be familiar with uh, a Discord now that it's been a few months into the pandemic. Uh, they're doing a big rebrand to get away from the kind of gaming image, but we're not a gaming server. So this is the kind of server that they want to uh, they want to promote. Go ahead and check it out. Bit.ly slash J-U-R-Y Discord. D-I-S-C-O-R-D. Till next time, is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics. You know, other shows, they're talking about politics. And still more, they are talking about politics. But this, this, friends, is the only show that dares to discuss all three. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>